Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. My guest today is Professor Peter Paul Verbeek. Peter Paul Verbeek is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy of Technology at the University of Twente. He is Chair of the Philosophy of Human Technology Relations Research Group and Coordinator of the Design Lab of the University of Twente. His research focuses on the philosophy of human technology relations and the philosophical theory, ethical reflections and practices of design and innovation. Peter Paul, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you. Wonderful. Happy to be here. Uh, Peter Paul, humans uh, usually have uh, a negative and a reactionary approach to technology. And it is not a new phenomenon. Uh, even in the ancient Greek, uh, philosophers had reservations about the emerging technology of that time. So my question is, uh, why we try to alienate technology and uh, why we say that uh, technology is something out there that can harm us? Ah, very interesting question. Well, I, I'm I'm not sure if I would call every response to technology a reactionary response, but indeed people have often felt, uh, yeah, somehow threatened by technology. And I think the reason for this is that technology always has quite a fundamental uh, impact on how we live our lives, how we understand ourselves, how we understand the world around us. So, what it means to be human actually uh, changes over time under the influence of technologies. So that means that new technologies put ourselves at stake. As soon as we started to to use the technology of writing, our memory started to change. And of course, the philosophers of those days, Socrates, Plato, were worried about the impact that writing would have on our memories. But then, of course, in their imagination, the fear was that we would lose our capacity to memorize and that it might well, even be the end of culture. <laughs> Whereas, in the end, we found a new way to relate to the technology of writing. And we have learned to deal with it as some kind of an extension of our memory, uh, uh, through which our memories that we have ourselves started to function differently. Uh, but we have not seen the end of culture, but we've seen the beginning of a new culture, of a writing culture with new ways in which stories of the past could stay uh, in the present, etc. Et so we are at stake uh, through technologies, and that's what we fear. And at the same time, it's also an opportunity to, to reinvent ourselves, I would say. And uh, we see this uh, phenomenon uh, keeps happening again and again. Uh, when printing press was invented, the same fears uh, were expressed. And now we observe uh, the same fears and concerns are being expressed about computers and other modern and emerging technologies. Yeah, the interesting thing indeed of the technologies that you mentioned now is that they're all technologies of the mind, you could say. And so the printing press, of course, is a technology that uh, enabled us to uh, start circulating ideas quite fast. And also scientific knowledge, academic knowledge, uh, if you could already say that it existed back then, um, was not locked up anymore in the monasteries of those days, but started to circulate uh, through society. So that was the beginning of the scientific revolution, which was quite a big step in the development of the human mind, you could say. And maybe with a big leap, also artificial intelligence at this moment is such a cognitive technology, a technology of the mind 
that enables us to understand the world differently, but it also puts a lot of our own thinking, our own responsibility, maybe also diversity, inclusiveness, etc., at stake. I think also for that reason, we have quite a big ethical debate at this moment about artificial intelligence, which somehow resembles a bit the discussions that we had in ancient times about the invention of writing. Uh, We will come back uh, to these uh, modern technologies uh, later uh, in our uh, conversation. However, uh, I want to ask an important question at this point. Uh, It seems we need a thorough and philosophical approach to understand our relationship with technology. Let us first try to understand what is the philosophy of technology. Ah, well, I think um, philosophy of technology is a quite young uh, uh, subfield within philosophy. Uh, and it has as its main ambition, I think, to understand what technology is and also to understand how we could uh, evaluate technology, how we could ask the right ethical, normative questions about technology. And of course, in retrospect, you can already say that earlier thinkers in the history of philosophy uh, were in fact already philosophers of technology. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think as a, as a discipline, I think it's uh, really the second half of the 20th century that, um, well, saw the emergence of the philosophy of technology as a field. In uh, your presentations and publications on the subject of philosophy of technology, you repeatedly use two terms, uh, phenomenology and post-phenomenology. Phenomenology is perhaps the approach to understand the relationship between subject and object in a system under consideration. Uh, You emphasize in your research that to study and understand our relationship with technology, phenomenology is not enough. Uh, We need to adopt a post-phenomenology approach. So for our listeners, uh, first let us try to understand phenomenology and then help us to understand uh, that why in your view we need a post-phenomenology approach to better understand human-technology relationship. Yeah, wonderful. No, so uh, indeed, uh, I I come from a background that I think somehow mixes phenomenology and also, you could say, American pragmatism. And phenomenology, uh, uh, well, of course, is uh, quite an old uh, subfield within philosophy. And in my view, phenomenology has always tried to understand the relations between human beings and their world. So there are many uh, uh, thinkers in phenomenology, in the history of phenomenology, who have tried to do that, to understand consciousness, for instance, as the connection between humans and the world, or perception, or simply being in the world, uh, with dashes between the world, uh, the, 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 the words, as Martin Heidegger would have said it. And phenomenology has uh, always tried to overcome uh, the strict separation in our thinking that we typically make or tend to make between subject and object. Also, in the history of philosophy, there have been long debates about knowledge, for instance. Is it founded on uh, the real world? And should our knowledge be an objective representation of the world uh, out there or something? Or is it ultimately founded uh, on our ideas about the world, which we need to give sense and to give meaning to all our sensory uh, impressions that we have from the world? Phenomenologists would say, okay, this is a wrong starting point. The real 
basis is not either in the subject or in the object. But the only thing that we always have is a relation between the two. And that's what phenomenologists call intentionality. And so uh, it means that we cannot just think, that we always think something, or we see something, we hear something. Eh? Humans are always somehow related to the world in which they live their lives. And that relation, that being directed at, that is what intentionality is. Now, in the history of phenomenology, uh, many people also started to think about science and about technology. And then typically the sciences and technology were placed in the realm of the object. Uh, and also quite easily ended up as being in opposition to the subject. And when you got ideas that scientific knowledge only tells you something about, uh, well, the world as it would look like if you would be alienated from it, uh, when you would give up all your engagement with it, then it would be a pile of objects outside of you. And in technology, of course, these objects can also then have negative impact in the world of the subject. So ultimately, phenomenology also developed into a basis for quite negative, conservative, sometimes also a bit nostalgic and you, know, you could say romantic ideas about the authenticity of the human subject, uh, which was opposed then to the alienating uh, powers of, of the object or of scientific knowledge, which reduced the world to an object. So that's, I think, uh, also what set the tone of some of the classical positions in the field, maybe most notably the position of Martin Heidegger, who really saw technology as a way of approaching the world of objects as, as objects, as objects that were even there to be manipulated by human beings. So technology is then a way of thinking about the world, where the world becomes a big pile of manipulatable objects and we become the manipulating subjects, totally detached from that world. Well, Post-phenomenology, even though it's uh, really a tongue twister and maybe the worst word we could have ever chosen <laughs> to indicate our position, but yeah, now, now we, we are stuck with it because everybody knows the word, <laughs> but post-phenomenology tries to, uh, to overcome this uh, kind of romanticism and this pessimism by seeing the, um, the role of technology as constitutive for this human technology, sorry, for this human world relation. So what post-phenomenology does is not seeing technology as some kind of an alienating object that uh, invades in the world of the human subject. It doesn't place technology in the world of objects at all. It places technology in the relation. So what post-phenomenology does is saying that uh, we cannot do otherwise as human beings than being related to the world around us. And technologies are the medium through which this relation gets shaped. And so if you talk to somebody on the phone, you're not interacting with your phone, but you have a different kind of relation with the other person via the phone, a different understanding of the world. You have different forms of concentrating yourself, different forms of engaging with your material environment. If you can take pictures of it, I mean, you can go on forever with this uh, maybe all too obvious example of the, of the mobile phone. But the point is technologies are media. They mediate between humans and the world. So that means that post-humanology is focusing on uh, human-technology relations. How can we understand the ways in which technologies somehow organize how we are interacting with the world? And then, as soon as you start to ask that question, technology is not an alienating power uh, opposed to us anymore, but it's rather constitutive for who we are. It becomes almost part, well not almost, it becomes part of the human condition.
And that's maybe another line that I should bring into this discussion, is that post-technology also has a lot of connections with uh, philosophical anthropology. And so the philosophical ambition to develop concepts, to uh, analyze what it means to be human. And uh, a lot of um, approaches within the history of philosophical anthropology, funnily enough, uh, move to technology to understand what a human being is. Uh, which is maybe, in a sense, also not so surprising uh, because uh, it's actually those technologies, also scientific knowledge, that made us ask in the first place uh, what it means to be human. Yeah? The theory of evolution, for instance, uh, well, took away maybe part of what humans felt as that was so special about them. Uh, in the in the Western world, and of course also in other parts of the world, in different ways, people thought that humans were... Um, a form of God's creation. And of course, many people uh, still believe it, and you can mean many things with that. But as soon as Darwin started to say that we're basically an ape that has developed further, then, uh, well, that has a lot of implications for how we understand ourselves. And um, the interesting thing of philosophical anthropology then is that it started to see technology really as the thing that sets the human being apart from the other animals. So, um, for instance, uh, uh, French uh, anthropologist Le Roi Gourand had this very interesting idea of uh, the human being as having uh, used always uh, its hands as the way to interact with the environment. Uh, basically, we only use our uh, legs and not our front legs, which are now our arms, to move around, which gave us hands. And those hands gave us the possibility to manipulate objects, to, to, to treat objects as tools. And uh, according to his theory, that was also the beginning of the ways in which human beings started to develop their own cognition, because that gives you an evolutionary advantage only when you have memory and you can remember how to use these objects, or you have forms of creativity where you can design new objects, and you have language to, to explain other people how to use them. So then the whole idea is that human beings... Uh, are basically not just animals that have developed beyond the stage of animal, but it's basically animals with uh, well in which something is lacking that we need to compensate for with technology. We don't have a thick fur, eh, so we need fire to keep us warm if it's cold outside. Uh, we don't have very strong jaws, so we need equipment to uh, to eat. And so, in that sense, technology becomes part of the human condition. It enables us to live our lives as human beings. And as soon as we, we use technologies, they also help to shape how we live those lives, how we are human, how we engage with the world, how we see ourselves, how we have social relations, etc. That That's the core idea of post-technology. So the focus shifts to mediation, that how technology mediates our relationship uh, with the outside world. Uh, this approach removes the subject-object distinction that a number of uh, studies follow. And the focus now is on the relationship and the goal is to study how technology mediates our relationship with the world. Yes. Yes, so indeed... Um, I would say that um, the, the, the concept of mediation is really the way in which I tried to take that field of post-phenomenology further. And uh, I build a lot here on the work of uh, the philosopher Don Idy, the North American philosopher Don Idy, who was really the, the one to start the post-phenological movement. 
But in, I think in my approach, there's also a lot of ideas from philosophical anthropology, as I said, and also from science and technology studies, and mainly from the work of Bruno Latour, who also tried to problematize the subject-object distinction. And mediation, for me, is indeed a way to express that these technologies that, that we use are always a, a medium, and that that medium is, is active. Like Marshall McLuhan, and the media theorist from the United States said, that the medium is the message. <laughs> and so technologies mediate means that the means that we use are not neutral means. They are not just silent and mute and transparent, but they actively mediate. And that's uh, quite a big insight because it also puts some central ideas that we sometimes have about technology really upside down. And if, if technology for people is still... Uh, well, the expression of the human uh, will to power. <laughs> if, if, if we think that we can can do anything that we want with technology, then the concept of mediation shows that any technology that we develop, that we design, that, that we use, is not just an expression of our power, but it also has power over us. <laughs> Nobody had the idea that the, the mobile phone would have such a big impact on our society, that it would change social relations, it would give an enormous impetus to social media, which gave an enormous impetus to uh, disinformation, which really played a big role in populism, in democracies, etc. <laughs> so we cannot control the means that we have developed to, uh, well, to control the world. I think that is, uh, well, I mean, seeing that also maybe makes you understand better why people have always also been a bit afraid about technology. <laughs> because uh, on, on the one hand, you think you use a tool to do something, so you're in control. But as soon as you use it, the tool also starts to, well, to have an influence on you. And that's, I think, also why the philosophy of technology and uh, also, therefore, the post phenomenological philosophy of technology or the theory of mediation is closely linked to ethics, ethics of technology. Normative reflection has always played an enormous role in the philosophy of technology. And some people have even complained about that, saying that hey, we need an empirical turn because it's only about politics and ethics and we just need to understand more concretely what is technology, what does technology do? But as soon as you ask the question, you always end up seeing technologies in their contexts and also, well, playing a role, playing uh, what I would call a mediating role in the in the context. So, in my own, yeah, so in, in my own work, I've, I've I've always tried to to understand the mediating role of technology uh, more systematically. So, for instance, over the past five years, I've been running a project with a, a team of six people. Uh, to, to understand more deeply that phenomenon of technological mediation. And then we elaborated it in, in, in well, the fields that, according to Immanuel Kant, are the central fields in philosophy. You know, in a sense, we did this with a little irony. I, I would never call myself a follower of the, the work of Kant. But still, uh, the three questions for Kant are, uh, what can I know? What should I do? And what may I hope for? So it's basically epistemology, knowledge. What is knowledge? How can I understand knowledge? Uh, then the second thing is ethics, normativity, and the third thing is uh, metaphysics, or also the existential and sometimes even religious question. Is there a meaningful way to speak about things that we cannot perceive and that are not scientifically to be proved? Well, in all these three fields, technologies play their mediating role. And so if you try to understand scientific practice nowadays, there is no other way than to include the mediating role of technologies in those practices. 
I, I find that really, really interesting. So, for instance, if you would ask a, a psychologist nowadays why teenagers are not so good at taking responsibility for their behavior, you would typically uh, see a picture of an fMRI image uh, which shows the brain in action and which shows that that specific part of the prefrontal cortex where rational decision-making is located, that, that doesn't function as well as it's supposed to or something. And so it means that the ways in which we use technologies to get in touch with the brain helps us to understand uh, the behavior of human beings, which would have been completely different if we would only have these EEG images, these little lines that show the electrical activity in the brain, which could never give you this exact location of the, the well, the specific region of rational decision making. <laughs> and if, if if you think further along these lines, for instance, the work of uh, Sigmund Freud in psychoanalysis, uh, uh, you could say, well, in fact, that, that well, that he 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 also had an explanation for why teenagers cannot take responsibility so well. Uh, but it was a completely different one based on different technological backgrounds. So for Freud, the explanation would be that as a teenager, you have to develop your individuality. You have to free yourself from your parents, especially from your mother who imposes her ideas on you. And in order to do that, in order to, 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 to find your own normative compass, you have to, to go against the one that your, your, your parents gave you. So you have to act irresponsibly to develop an idea of what responsibility is. <laughs> and he found out those things by putting people on a couch, on a, on a sofa, sitting behind them from the idea that then your subconscious ideas would flow freely and you would get in touch with the things that really motivate your behavior without you even being aware of it. <laughs> and so Freud, but also current psychology, used used and, and still use technologies to arrive at an understanding of human behavior. Well, that's for science. I think within the field of, uh, in the field of ethics, this is even more exciting and maybe also a bit more scary because for me, ethics of technology is not only about developing ethical frameworks to evaluate technology, but it's also about understanding how technologies change our ethical frameworks, how, how normative ideas take shape in interaction with technologies. And so my book, Moralizing Technology, is a book in which I try to understand how we can speak about technologies with ethical words. <laughs> and if you do some investigation, uh, then it, it's maybe even uh, less exotic than it might sound at the first glance. But a lot of our ethical ideas actually take shape in interaction with technologies. In, in, in the early days of anesthesia, for instance, when it became possible to uh, make people uh, uh, feel less pain or no pain at all during surgery, this was a highly contested technology because people had the idea that, of course, it had a function that you feel pain when you open the body and you just suppress that sensation and you act as if it's nothing. And of course, th th that was wrong because your body was good as it was. And why should we intervene in that? <laughs> and so from that perspective, you can say, okay, look what a mess we made of the world where we just operate on people <laughs> with anesthesia. <laughs> Whereas, of course, that would be absurd because now it would be completely immoral to operate on somebody without painkilling or anesthesia. So that means that the technologies that we use in practices change the meaning of the values, uh, and I would say in this case, it's maybe a value of uh, dignified suffering or something, or something like respect for your patients. But what these values mean 
changes over time through technology. So technologies are also moral mediators. And that's maybe quite a big uh, pill to swallow <laughs> if you uh, are looking for some kind of a, a an, an eternal foundation uh, for ethics. Yeah, so I, I think it shows that ethics is historical, it develops over time, it is contextual. And of course, for me, that doesn't imply that ethics is only relative and that it's, well, it changes over time, so why bother? I mean, yeah? so I, I, I am not a relativist at all. I think it shows that any technology that we develop is very, very sensitive because it does not only have an impact on society that we can evaluate ethically, but it also has an impact on how we can evaluate the impact of technology. So the ethical frameworks that we use are not independent from the technology that we evaluate with them. <laughs> There's no independent yardstick. The yardstick is connected to the thing that we try to measure with it. And that makes ethics of technology really, really fascinating. How can you do that? How can you make ethics dynamically related to the thing that it is about? You briefly touched upon uh, technology ethics, uh, mainly from a philosophical perspective. But I think it is equally important that we discuss technology ethics uh, from an uh, engineering perspective. Uh, so uh, engineers, uh, technology designers and developers, uh, software engineers uh, and programmers, when they are developing these new technologies uh, and some of these new technologies are very powerful, how should they deal with ethical aspects of these new and emerging technologies when these technologies are being developed uh, and, and are being built? Yeah, wonderful, wonderful question. I mean, this is also really what motivates me deeply. So I do not only have a background in philosophy, but also in, in, in physics. And uh, I work as a, uh, well, I, in our department of philosophy, uh, but also as the scientific co-director of our design lab. <laughs> so I'm deeply engaged with philosophical uh, practice, but also with technological practice. And I think here, I mean, this is really where ethics of technology can can uh, do its work in a, in a good way. Uh, but there, of course, the challenge is to do this indeed in a, in a good way. Uh, so I think there are several ways in which you can connect ethical theory of technology to the practice of design and engineering. And so, of course, that mediation approach that I uh, told about uh, gives you a framework to anticipate the potential future implications of a technology that you're designing. And so the core idea is then technologies always influence our behavior, our perceptions of the world, our interpretational frameworks, social practices, etc. And using your imagination in a organized way, uh, can help you to anticipate the potential implications and then also to somehow link that back to your work as a designer. And so as soon as you see that there are values at stake in those implications, you can try to take them into account when you are designing a technology. So there is also this approach of value-sensitive design uh, developed by Petra Friedman uh, from Seattle, Washington, uh, where she uh, has this interesting method of, well, um, trying to work ethical values into the design of technology. But uh, the situation is maybe even a bit more complicated than this. So, of course, this is really important to do. This is what I'm teaching our students all the time at the University of Twente. But at the same time, 
um, those values are also affected by technologies. <laughs> and that, well, as I said, that makes ethics of technology really challenging. So if you develop a technology for the future, yeah, so if, if, if you try to understand what implications it could have in the future, then you also need to understand what ethical frameworks there might be in the future <laughs> to evaluate the technologies then. It would be a bit weird if we would now all reject anesthesia in hospitals because of the ethical frameworks that people had 150 years ago. And of course, that is really complicated because we cannot predict the future. And so this looks like what in our field is often called the Collingridge dilemma, which is a dilemma about how to take responsibility for technologies when we don't know their future implications. And the, the dilemma basically says that we're always either too early or too late. <laughs> and so if you're still early in the stage of development of technology, you can still uh, change the technology, you can redesign it, whatever, but you don't know the impact yet. As soon as you know the impact, you're already too late <laughs> because you cannot change the technology. So how could you do that? Well, this is where the theory of mediation got its, uh, well, its, its extension into understanding how technologies change moral frameworks. So what we've developed over the past years Olya Kudina has done this especially, one of my former PhD students who now works at the Delft University of Technology. Uh, she, she developed a framework to anticipate uh, the impact on ethical frameworks. And that's, uh, uh, of course, quite a complicated thing to do. <laughs> but you can study these things, in a sense, empirically. And so um, if I may give you an example of this, uh, Google Glass is uh, uh, one of the case studies that she investigated. So Google Glass is a technology that never really reached the market. A trial version of it did reach the market, but it was never uh, a big success. It has never been a big success. Um, but what we could do is to investigate um, uh, the uh, video material that people put online on, on YouTube uh, uh, who were using Google Glass. And we could study the uh, discussions that people had about those videos. And the, the question that Olya Kudina had there was, uh, how do people implicitly define the value of privacy when they uh, have uh, an assessment of Google Glass? And you could see actually that the meaning of that word privacy uh, was highly linked to what Google Glass was doing. So the standard textbook definition of the right uh, to be to be left alone or control over your data, whatever, uh, did not really apply to the concerns that people had actually in real life about Google Glass, which were only typically, which were also typically about how you could be together, uh, whether uh, being with another person was really being privately together and if it's some if it's another person was really looking at you or secretly watching a movie or videotaping you or whatever and well there were many 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 examples that she found to show that what privacy means for people gets redefined through a technology and well i find that interesting because that gives um, the designers an extra responsibility. And so the, the, the idea that te technological mediation takes away the responsibilities of designers is totally uh, uh, false. <laughs> and so it, it, it's not the case that uh, we cannot control anything and technologies steer our morality, so let's stop doing ethics. Quite the opposite. Once we see this, we also become responsible for the impact of technology and the, 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 the mediating roles in our society and for the impact that technology has on ethics itself. So it's 
expanding our responsibility rather than diminishing it. In your recent publications, uh, and you uh, mentioned one of these few moments ago, you talk about the concept of ethics from within. And you emphasize that uh, technology enables users to have power. And instead of fighting and trying to control the power uh, that technology gives its users, we should ensure that ethics are engineered in the technology. We should ensure that there are built-in ethics in every new technology that we develop. And if this is the case, then we don't have to worry about the power that these new technologies hold. So ethics from within seems an interesting and uh, promising approach. Yeah, thank you. Well, indeed, that, that this is really one of the, the most important things that we try to to say in, in the publication. So if you um, oppose humans and technology, so if you oppose ethics and technology, then indeed ethics becomes some kind of a boundary guard between humans and technologies. Ethics will tell uh, how far technology can invade in the human sphere or something. But as soon as you connect the two, as soon as you accept the idea that technologies are also uh, mediating morality, but on the other hand, that we can also ethically design technologies, <laughs> then ethics comes from within. Uh, and, and that also uh, gives a different uh, nature to ethical reflection. So the, 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 the idea that it needs to be completely independent from technology in order to be valuable in, uh, in, order to be valuable <laughs> in the first place needs to be uh, given up. And I think in that place, we need to have a recognition of the, well, the, the historical and situated uh, contextual nature of our ethics. But not to say, oh, it changes anyway. No, it's more, how can we, in this concrete situation, with these technologies and these implications, take responsibility? And so for me, it is a way of doing more justice to the the, 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 the serious ethical issues that we are facing than to say, ah, oh, uh, it's all a bunch of relativism. <laughs> there is no way to address these uh, questions. And then, well, Maybe in the in the current discussions about artificial intelligence and digital technologies, this becomes uh, ex- well explicitly clear. <laughs> as since um, well, uh, as we opened our conversation, these technologies seem to really have a big impact on our thinking, on our on our minds, uh, and of course, the mind is also the way in which we well the the the, the basis on which we do ethics and so there's quite a lot at stake so i would never say oh it, it has always been like this so let's not let's not bother i think we should bother because there's there's a lot at stake and maybe now that we see this now that we understand a bit more of the dynamics between humans and technologies and our interpretive frameworks of the world we can also take more responsibility for it than we maybe have been doing in the past You were involved uh, in preparing a a report for UNESCO on the ethics of robotics. Talk us through the main findings uh, and uh, recommendations of uh, this report. Okay, yeah, indeed. So I'm the chairperson of COMEST, that's the World Commission on the Ethics of Science and Technology of UNESCO, which is in itself already a very, very interesting organization to to be in, (laughs) since uh, it's a global 
worldwide organization. And doing ethics on a global scale is really, really very special and very rewarding. It's uh, maybe, well, no, not maybe. This is definitely the most, uh, well, en- uh, enriching thing <laughs> that I'm doing in my in my working life. Uh, and uh, the reason for that is that we need to uh, uh, do justice to all the different ethical frameworks and orientations that we have around the world, uh, from very individualistic frameworks to very collectivistic frameworks, the different views on nature, the relation between nature and human beings, technologies. Uh, what? So uh, it's very interesting to, to, to be uh, in that organization. And regarding robotics, um, the main thing that we try to do is to to understand uh, not only the principles via which we could evaluate robots. Uh, that's typically what ethical analyses look like. Uh, what are the principles? Uh, how should we deal with justice and equality? And, and, and of course, these things are very, very important. So don't don't get me wrong. I I do believe that that is extremely important. But we we try to to start our discussion. Uh, uh, um, from within, as it were. <laughs> and so to, to start from where do robots play a role in our societies, uh, in our daily lives, and how do they affect practices of education, uh, of uh, love and friendship, uh, of uh, healthcare. And if we understand that more deeply, we can also understand more deeply what are the central ethical questions to be addressed maybe not only to be addressed in the design of technologies, but also in uh, the legislation and the regulation regarding robotics or in uh, somehow enabling users to deal with robots in a critical and in a responsible way. So that's what we try to do. And um, we also try to stay away a bit from the frame that robots need to be seen as uh, some kind of replacement for the humans, because then again, you organize this uh, struggle between humans and technologies, where there's a fight between the human subject and the technical object. And we also, uh, well, voice in that report the, the idea that this is not how we should uh, address the ethics of robots. It's not about should we allow them or not to be in society. It's more about what values need to have a central place and what ethical principles do we need to follow when we uh, give them a place in our society. What's at stake and how can we give it some kind of a responsible direction? So, it's yeah, it's, it's interesting to, uh, to do that. And it's also not... Uh, the only report, by the way, that Comest has been writing on digital technologies, we've also finished a report already on the ethics of artificial intelligence, which was also part of the foundation for the current work within the UNESCO organization of a different committee, an ad hoc expert group on the ethics of artificial intelligence to, to really work towards a worldwide ethical framework, a normative framework for all the member states to deal responsibly with AI. And within Comest, at the moment, we are finalizing a report about the Internet of Things which is also really interesting. So the, 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 the role of digital technologies in our everyday life world, in our material environment, where and the, the, the material environment that used to be uh, stable and mute and silent uh, suddenly becomes active. Uh, things are connected to each other. They perceive us, they influence our behavior. What does that do at the individual level how we live our lives, but also at the social level of social interactions and at the societal level of the, of the relation between the state and the, and the citizens. 
Let us continue with robotics and artificial intelligence. Researchers in the field of robotics and artificial intelligence are aiming to develop technologies that are more intelligent and more powerful than humans. When we reach that milestone, will the ethical framework developed by humans uh, still hold? Or uh, do you think that at that point technology will dictate its own ethical framework that humans uh, will have to follow? Does the UNESCO report look into that aspect of emerging technologies? We might face uh, these challenges uh, in a distant future, but still many researchers are concerned about uh, these possibilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I, I totally see that as, that that is the concern, and also the ad hoc expert group uh, of UNESCO recognizes that concern, but it also quite explicitly states that this is not reality yet and it's highly doubtful if it will ever become reality uh, because there is no such a thing as strong ai as they call it a strong artificial intelligence where uh, artificial intelligence artificially intelligent systems also have a consciousness and are aware of themselves etc so i think that idea that it would be some kind of a superhuman uh, and that it might actually take over <laughs> and that we would become the slaves of the technology and that that's really science fiction negative science but maybe bad science fiction <laughs> but I, I think the whole idea that technologies might be better than humans i think that that's not such a weird idea that that's the whole point of technology i mean a a shovel is much uh, yeah, it's stronger than I am, right? I mean, it 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 can uh, tear down a wall, and I I well, it takes me a lot of time if I would need to do that with a big sledgehammer. <laughs> and so shovels are stronger, but we are not afraid that shovels would take over the planet or something. And so the, the whole point of technology is that we develop things that enable us to do things that we could not do without them. But the challenge is also to develop frameworks to deal with that new power in a responsible way. And that's maybe what we are afraid of, that the kind of power that AI has, that artificial intelligence has, is new to us. So if AI can uh, make sense of very complicated big data sets, and on the basis of that, it can, for instance, well, make a diagnosis of a patient or uh, advise a judge about uh, a verdict in a in a law case. Now, of course, the question is, how can we still deal with that? How could a doctor go against the advice of an AI? <laughs> on on what basis? If if the doctor cannot understand how the AI arrives at its conclusions, how could you possibly go against it? And so I think this is exactly what the discussion about AI is at at this moment. So how can we then make uh, AI um, somehow explainable? And so how can we make sure that, um, well, uh, systems that give advice uh, explain how they came to their advice. How can we make also the, the data sets with which the algorithms were trained transparent? So how can we avoid that, uh, well, the, the ideas or the, the, well, the, the correlations that we have been teaching the algorithms were biased? So uh, we are discovering that um, these technologies give us new powers and uh, they, they bring in a power that we do not possess. So we need technologies to have that power, but we cannot just uh, take it for granted. We have to, to learn to deal with that. Just like you have to learn how to drive a car responsibly. You cannot just uh, start your car and drive away. You have to learn 
to deal responsibly with the enormous new powers that artificial intelligence gives. So, um, so that, that, that's also a way of seeing AI as a mediator, not as an alternative to the human, but as a mediator of human existence. But then, of course, many people would object that some of the AI systems are actually autonomous. What about uh, autonomous weapons or self-driving cars? Uh, so then actually we, we give agency to technologies and let them do things by themselves uh, that used to be reserved for humans only. And while also there, I would still say that it, it is a mediation. <laughs> As, uh, I mean, if you use a self-driving car, it's still a car that mediates the way in which we try to get from A to B. It's our desire to transport ourselves to another location or goods to another location. And uh, these technologies also mediate the ways in which we try to realize that goal and also the ways in which we deal with our environment in achieving that goal. And same is true, of course, for uh, killer robots. And of course, that, that's a very, very nasty discussion. And it's also a case where I, and of course, also the UNESCO Commission would really say that this is really a no-go area. Decisions about life and death uh, are horrible in itself already, and we can never leave them to, uh, to machines. But at the same time, we should also recognize that these systems do mediate how people make these decisions. So... Um, even when we speak about autonomous uh, systems uh, equipped with artificial intelligence, it's still meaningful to, to, to see them as mediators and not as replacements of the human. Moving on from robotics uh, and artificial intelligence to big data and information and social media technologies, these technologies enable uh, information and also disinformation uh, move very quickly and there are technologies and platforms that can be used to spread disinformation to gain political power and to create uh, social disruptions. So what are the ethical aspects of such technologies that uh, must be reviewed and uh, fine-tuned? Yeah, um, I think it's ethical all the way down. So uh, it's all about the the moral mediation of uh, of media. <laughs> and so uh, these media help us to make sense of the world. That's how they mediate. And I mean, they're even called media. <laughs> so how much mediation can you get? And uh, I think the, the the idea that we should treat them as uh, as neutral uh, and as objective or something is in itself as problematic as misinformation itself is. So I, I think what we should see is that these media always help to shape people's interpretations of the world and that we should also empower people with the ways to appropriate these media, to, to make sense of the media, to, to understand that these media are not just neutral tools, but that they are mediating. <laughs> and, and so part of the answer is, of course, in uh, stopping to spread disinformation, if it's deliberate disinformation and all, uh, only attempts to, uh, to destroy uh, the, 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 the free discussion that, that people have. And so, of course, I, I would say from my own um, believe in democracy that that is a very wrong thing to do but on the other hand um, if we fail to empower people with uh, the critical thinking that is needed 
to uh, deal with media in a responsible way, then that, that, that's even worse. <laughs> and so I think that's the most important thing. Mediation comes with appropriation. No technology mediates just from itself. Then, then it would be determinism. And then you would believe that technologies determine the human being. But mediation theory is not a determinism. Technologies mediate in a human technology world relation. And in that human technology world relation, the technologies play their role. But the humans also. The humans have to make sense of the technology in order for the technology to be able to play their mediating role. This is also something that played a big role in the very nice dissertation of Olya Kudina, about whom I already spoke. This is what she calls the hermeneutic lemniscate, with the with the big concept. So it's kind of an an extension of the hermeneutic circle, a classical concept in in hermeneutic theory, which is about how how to understand interpretation. Well, the hermeneutic circle says that the interpreter and the interpreted thing shape each other. If you interpret something differently, then that thing changes what it is uh, for you. But in the relation you have with that, also you you change. As soon as the moon starts to become a satellite of the earth, uh, and you don't believe in the old cosmology uh, of the Greeks, uh, where there were perfectly round balls floating uh, uh, all around us, and where you, uh, well, as, as soon as you see it through your telescope that the moon has craters and it's not perfectly round, suddenly the moon changes. It, uh, it doesn't fit in the old cosmology, but you also change. You have become an, an, an observer of, of the moon and not part of the cosmos in which you had your place and the moon had it. And so technologies uh, was, yeah, change uh, what the world is and what human beings are. In the hermeneutic landscape, this is very explicitly elaborated. And so uh, an, an example that I like to use to explain these things is uh, uh, sonograms, ultrasound to to uh, make images of, uh, of of the fetus of the the, the unborn child, but of course sonograms make people responsible for uh, receiving a child with a specific health condition, and that used to be fate; it would just happen. And now, if, if you can make a sonogram, you can know it beforehand. So that changes a lot because it suddenly makes you responsible for your child in a new way. Well, with the lemniscate, you could say, okay, ultrasound is, of course, a way uh, to mediate between the pregnant woman and the fetus. But um, in order to do so, we need to make sense of all, what ultrasound is. If, if, if we think it's just a nice way to make uh, a picture of the fetus, yeah, the first picture in the baby album, then, of course, we can do that if, if, if that's the appropriation of the ultrasound. But then ultrasound makes visible the fetus, and you can also see a medical uh, the medical condition of the fetus. And then suddenly, if you see that, then it, it moves back to the ultrasound and you can say, okay, actually suddenly <laughs> uh, the ultrasound is making the fetus into a potential patient. And that makes the parent then suddenly uh, into a, a decision maker about the child. And so in the, in the shape of a landscape of, of an age, you go from human to technology to world, back to the technology to the human. <laughs> and so from pregnant woman to ultrasound to fetus, back to the ultrasound, back to the pregnant woman, and where you see that they're all dynamically linked and related to each other. That's, I think, a very powerful way to understand that we are not just, um, how do you say, uh, the victims of technology where technology is determining us. We are actively involved in appropriating technology. And that's for me, also the most important uh, antidotum that we have against misinformation. The ability to think 
critically, not only about the world, but also about the media through which we understand the world. Peter Paul, how should the field of philosophy of technology evolve so that our relationship with emerging technologies is well informed and is well understood and our relationship with emerging technologies uh, is positive? How should the field of philosophy of technology evolve? Wow, beautiful. Well, I, I think the field is actually also developing already and I also see maybe new new direction that it, that it uh, could take. So I, I think the first development we saw was what people call an empirical turn, which doesn't mean that philosophy becomes an empirical science, but it means that uh, rather than applying philosophical theory to technology, you try to let technology challenge your ethical theory. <laughs> Do our concepts still fit those new technologies? And I think that's what we really are learning again and again, also now in the digital revolution. What does autonomy mean? What does democracy mean in this digital digital world. So technologies challenge philosophy as much as philosophy can challenge technology. That that's one. Then I think second the design turn that we've seen. So the close connections between philosophy and design which is not seen as a way to be uncritical because we would then be too close to what we want to investigate but it's actually a way of being engaged. So you can be somewhat critical from within and try to organize more responsible practices of innovation, responsible design, as I like to call it uh, also from my role in our design lab at the University of Twente. So responsible design is maybe a very important thing uh, that is a, a bit more than value-sensitive design. It's also a way actually to start from society, to start from societal issues and questions and see how we can translate them into the values that should have a central place in the development of technologies. So it's not only anticipating the impact of 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 technology on society and see uh, if we can avoid harm it's more can we do positive ethics not uh, keeping out the negative but designing for the positive for well-being for happiness for flourishing so that that's the 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 second thing the design turn and maybe the the, the last thing that I would like to mention is uh, actually work that I've just been starting up it's what you could maybe call the the citizen turn or the the societal term. I think um, well, I'm really very much inspired by the work that we are doing in our design lab on citizen science, where science stops being the monopoly of scientists and scientific experts, but where citizens also get involved actively in scientific research. And of course, uh, I, I do believe in scientific expertise and I do believe in science, so don't get me wrong. I, I, I don't want to say that there is no such a thing as science, that anyone can do science, <laughs> but what I do believe is that a scientific practice has really undervalued uh, maybe the role of uh, citizens. Uh, science communication should not only about, uh, well, making citizens more enthusiastic about science, but also involving them. And that also not only in the execution of the work, but also in asking the right questions. Well, from that inspiration, you can also move to ethics. Why not citizen ethics? Why should ethics be a privilege of uh, the professional ethicists? I think that a lot of ethical concerns uh, about technologies actually emerge from society, from people who are experiencing the impact of technologies, and that impact might really be beyond what we can anticipate from our textbooks and from behind our, our desks and bookshelves. So I'm really uh, working on methods to to do citizen ethics. and we, So we have developed an approach that we call uh, guidance ethics in English, 
Uh, and that is an approach where we try to connect uh, ethics not only to the design of technologies, but also to the, well, how to guide technology in society. And well, that is that is an ethics from within and not from outside, but it's also an ethics uh, uh, bottom up and not top down. So it's 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 an approach where we can have workshops, uh, focus groups, if you want, with citizens, with stakeholders, with with people who are experiencing the impact of technology, who can help us to articulate better what the effects of such technologies might be on society and what the values are that are at stake there in order to feed them back into maybe a, a redesign of the technology or better regulation, uh, at least a better embedding of the technology in society, or also in equipping users to deal with the technology in a better way, in, in, in a more critical way, through education, uh, through uh, campaigns in the media, etc. So that's maybe the third thing, I hope, uh, from the empirical turn to the design turn to the, the citizen turn. Fascinating. I believe uh, you are working on a new book. Yes, that is true. Uh, I, I wish I had more time for it, but I really hope to finish it this year. And that will basically be a book about that theory of mediation. It will be about how technology is the condition for, for, for uh, human existence and what it implies for our understanding of the world. So I will focus a lot on digital technologies. Uh, so the, 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 the new uh, wave of technologies, uh, what people have come to call the fourth revolution, leading to what people also call out the, 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 the fifth society, society 5.0. So what I try to do in the book is to, to offer a framework to understand what mediation is. And of course, I have done that before, but I will now really focus this on our interpretational frameworks, our ethical frameworks, our scientific frameworks, our existential ideas about uh, life and death and about, uh, well, what it means to be human. And, uh, I, well, I, it, it will have a lot of citizen ethics in it and also a lot of my experiences within UNESCO uh, with global ethics, which I think is more needed than ever because technology is, of course, also a global phenomenon. I am looking forward to reading that book uh, when it comes out and uh, I would uh, love to review it here uh, at Bridging the Gaps. Wonderful. I will let you know when it's done. <laughs> Professor Peter Paul Vervik, uh, we have been discussing philosophy of technology and we have touched upon a number of fascinating topics and uh, interesting points. Is there anything else that uh, we should discuss before we close this discussion? Well, I actually think that we've, we've touched upon it all. <laughs> uh, I've uh, tried to say anything that I uh, wanted to say uh, on the basis of your very interesting questions. So I'm, I'm perfectly happy with uh, all the nice uh, uh, directions that our conversation took. Thank you. Thank you very much for this very, very interesting interview. I also think that you have a very interesting podcast. So I, uh, it, it's, it's an honor to be a part of this uh, exciting podcast series that you, that you have. So thank you. Thank you so much. It was a very interesting conversation. Professor Peter Paul Verbeek, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Thank you so much, Wasim. Thank you and goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you.